bring unto you the greatest thing there be, that which is termed the knowing, that you are loved by that which is called the Father that is within you and within all things, that be I. Thank you. Indeed. Stay tuned until the end because I'm going to discuss an often misunderstood verse in scripture. I might get in some trouble for this one. If this is your first time here, make sure and hit that subscribe button and click the bell so that you never miss a video or an interview. Our goal is to help you enter into a confirmed, confident, and eternal relationship with the source of all life and purpose. Now, one thing we can get clear right up front is that the biblical authors were attempting to provide clarity for the early church. The goal wasn't to make sure everyone had a title so they could in some way know that they were important. That being said, sometimes titles, oftentimes titles do provide clarity, even if they're not in the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. Especially in a large church, it's important to have clarity and structure. For example, I am formerly the pastor of education at a large church in the city with about twelve to 15,000 people. As pastor of education, I was responsible for starting the education department. While there, I decided to create an evaluation process so that anyone that taught in any of the sub-ministries would be qualified and held accountable. We had weeks of training and each individual had to give a presentation in front of other ministers, pastors, and teachers where they were evaluated amongst several categories. I then instituted quarterly trainings. We were about to make sure that every ministry in the church, men's, women's, outreach, etc., had qualified teachers to lead those who attended their gatherings. My team and I, I'm proud to say, were able to train and assist hundreds of teachers during that time. So if someone had a question about the praise team, they knew not to come to me. They had to go to the praise and worship leader. I was not the person to help them. Likewise, in government, it makes sense to have specific titles. For example, I need to know if you are the Secretary of Education or the Secretary of Defense. Depending on your answer, our conversation may go in one direction or the other. In business, specific designations are also helpful. Are you the CEO or the maintenance supervisor? Are you the accountant or the sales manager? These titles provide clarity. My issue here in this video is with titles by some people in church leadership that don't seem to serve the purpose of clarity as much as vanity. Not only have titles of church leaders gone crazy, but even church names are getting a bit out of control. If any of these are the names of your church, I apologize in advance. So here are some names of some actual churches. The First Nigerian Church of the Crazy Mother. Sounds like a place I want to go. Mountain of Swallowing Problems Interdenomination Prayer Ministry. Okay. We also have the Guided Missiles Church in Nairobi. We have the Cowboy Church in Iowa. We have the Trumpet of God Church in Texas. And we have Beaver Lick Baptist Church in Kentucky. Beaver Lick? I could go on and on, but some of these are just weird. Some of the church titles that leaders have are also at times confusing and at other times just plain prideful or ridiculous. I once heard someone say, or actually I think I saw someone online identify themselves as a spiritual entrepreneur identity coach. That's not a thing! Now I will say I didn't see this one connected to a church, 
but the person did identify themselves as a Christian. I mean, I've also seen master healer, prophet, prophetess, so on and so on. I've seen titles such as prophetic reformer, kingdom seer, archdeacon, prophetic advisor, kingdom manifester, pastor of culture, presiding prelate, pastor of fun. Seriously, that's a thing. Praise and glory coordinator. Yes, that's also actually in a title that somebody listed under their name. Holiness coordinator. That's not a thing. I don't know how you get your job done every week. <laughs> and then, of course, there are the more well-known names that really also are kind of out of context and out of line, such as armor bearer. You know, well, an armor bearer is exactly what it sounds like. It was someone who carried the armor, the shield, the sword for a commander into battle. Now, unless you're preaching in Fallujah, you probably don't need one. Quick side note, the term armor bearer is nowhere in the New Testament. Just saying. And of course, the all too often, hey, Doc, how's it going, Doc? Or I've even personally been introduced from the stage that I'm about to speak from as Dr. McElroy, at which point I had to tell the audience that, in fact, I was not yet a doctor. Maybe sometime in the future. In a paper written by Larry White on church leaders, titles, and appellations, White records, titles and monikers tend to be a maze of identity concerns in modern religion. It seems that every reverend, quote unquote, out there has some sort of special designation. The writers in the Bible were more plain and simple in giving titles to the original first century church leaders. However, people have taken the functions of these leaders and turned them into even more titles when they were not originally. Presbyteros is the Greek word for elder or old man, meaning older in the faith. That is from where the Presbyterians get their name. And then you have the word episkopos, which is the word translated overseer and is literally epi over skupos to watch from which the Episcopalians get their name. Episcopos is also rendered as bishop in the King James Version. The English speakers struck off the first and last syllables from the Greek word, leaving only piscop, which the Saxons slurred into bishop. Then one more word is poimen, which is Greek for a man who tends and keeps a flock of sheep, shepherds or pastors, from which the Baptists get their leader's name. This word is only rendered pastors once by the King James Version, which is in Ephesians 4.11 in the plural. He continues, these words referred to all the same men or the office these men held. Number one, elders led the assembly due to their wisdom gained from their age and the faith and hence their experience. As the writer of Hebrews says, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Second, the elders were also overseers in their duty to watch over the assembly or flocked and protect it. It also carries the idea of their job in more of an administrative capacity. Paul calls it governing. It is where we get the idea expressed in the word supervisor, which means to watch over and was a position of authority. Still is. Third, the elders were also called shepherds in their role in tending, feeding, and caring for the flock with the idea of sustenance and protection. So why do people tend to exaggerate their title or create new titles? I'm just going to offer two reasons just so I can remain as charitable as possible, but also because... We could probably go on with those list of reasons for a lot longer. First, sometimes, either knowingly or unknowingly, someone may struggle with some form of an identity issue. And I'll speak for myself. When I don't fully understand my identity in Christ, or when I haven't fully understood it, I have to, to varying degrees, create my own identity or fill in what I feel to be gaps in my identity. 
We all do this. Now, in the past, anytime I was negative about someone or said something to hurt them, it was usually because at the root, I was trying to be loved and felt shame for messing up, or I recognized that there was a gap in my identity that they didn't seem to have to struggle with, and I probably felt some kind of resentment towards them. So go back in your life, ask yourself about the times where you were most abusive and hopefully only with your words, and then ask yourself, what was I not realizing about my true identity in Christ? See, when we don't know who we are, which is rooted in whose we are, history has shown us that people from all walks of humanity are capable of some truly awful and heinous deeds. There's a reason that only in the creation of man did God do something that was holy and utterly unique. He created man in his image. The first thing God gives us then is an identity because he knows or he knew that the longer we walked around with that question in that area of our existence, the more likely we would be and will be to sin. Everything from murder to pride. Another reason might be that someone genuinely believes that he or she has obtained a certain revelation from God or status from God that they are worthy of and therefore need a different, more significant title. I always say, if you have to tell somebody what you are, you're not that thing. The Bible instructs us, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We need clear thinking with a clear goal in mind. This is even more true for our leaders. In his list of qualities that a church leader should have, Paul wrote to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, <clears throat> having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. One final piece of clarification on this passage, see, to be sober-minded you know, this describes the person who's able to think clearly and with clarity. They're not constant joke makers, but know how to deal with serious subjects in a serious way. Wiersbe writes this, this does not mean he has no sense of humor or that he is always solemn and somber. Rather, it suggests that he knows the value of things and does not cheapen the mystery of the gospel message by foolish behavior. In other words, they're able to give themselves an accurate self-assessment. Paul says the leader should not be greedy for money or self-willed, but should be faithfully teaching the sound doctrine he was taught by those who taught and discipled him. They should be self-controlled. They should hold fast to the word. What's noticeably absent from the list is what we should call these well-qualified individuals in order to distinguish them from each other. Paul calls them elders and bishops interchangeably, but how would one know which elder is over or greater than the other elders? See, Paul gives the list and then moves on to the next topic. Nowhere are instructions given to give a person the status of the honorable bishop of the second ward of Jerusalem. Now, this isn't a call to get rid of all titles that, that, that's going to the extreme of where I'm trying to go. 
As I said earlier, titles can serve a purpose in promoting clarity and structure. But once they become a tool to further distance ourselves, at least spiritually, from all the others, that's when it's gone too far. In fact, in many churches, a misunderstanding of one verse in the whole letter of Ephesians has led to a sort of hierarchy that would be very foreign to the early church. So what can we learn from scripture? Now, some may not know this, but Luke's gospel is actually the longest gospel account and it's the longest book in the New Testament. In fact, even though Paul wrote more individual letters, 13 in all, Luke actually wrote more in volume as is more words overall. Matthew and Acts, which Luke also wrote, have 28 chapters. But we have to remember that the biblical authors didn't write the chapter and verse markers as they were composing their manuscripts. So even though the Gospel of Luke only has 24 chapters, it's still longer in volume and in words than Matthew's Gospel, as well as Luke's sequel in the book of Acts. With a word count of 19,482, Luke's is actually the longest letter. Acts has 18,450 Greek words, while Matthew contains 18,346. Now, there's a reason I'm bringing all this up, and I want you to consider this fact as well. Luke traveled with the what we can call the superstar of the early church, although Paul would never call himself that. Yet Luke did not call himself the, the consigliere to the senior apostle. <laughs> as far as scripture teaches, Luke was just Luke. Well, at one point, Paul lets us know that Luke was a doctor. Um, in fact, the Jesus Film Project cites, you can also see evidence of Luke's profession in the medical language he uses. In Acts 28 and 8, Luke says his father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. The Greek Luke uses for suffering from fever and dysentery, puritos kai dysenterio, is the actual correct medical terminology that one might find in the works of Hippocrates. In Luke 14, we encounter a man with dropsy. Luke uses the word hydropikos, which occurs nowhere else in the Bible, but can also be found in Hippocratic writings. That's just a little bonus apologetic info. Luke's gospel is also the only gospel written by a Gentile. So surely it would make sense that Luke would use this magnificent and well-researched work to elevate his status amongst the Jewish leaders of the early church. He could have used this as a resume builder to get a seat on the Jerusalem council, but he didn't. In fact, the one thing that is noticeably absent from Luke's gospel, as well as his work Acts, is who Luke is. The gospel of Luke begins like this. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Acts chapter 1 begins in like manner. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, at least Paul and Peter and the half-brothers of Jesus Jude and James let us know that they are apostles or bondservants of Jesus Christ. 
Luke doesn't give himself a title or clarify his authority or create a title to make himself sound more knowledgeable or holy or honorable. In fact, we should take notice of the fact that the term bondservant is a term by which Paul, James, Jude, and Peter all refer to themselves. It is a common declaration at the beginning of all of their letters. For example, Jude writes, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, in regard to Jude, Dave Guzik writes, the fact that he wanted himself to be known this way instead of introducing himself as Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us something of the humility of Jude and the relative unimportance of being connected to Jesus by human relationships. Also, while Jesus was alive, Jude, his half-brother, didn't want to be known as a follower of Jesus. He didn't believe his brother, his half-brother, was the Messiah. So, number one, something happened after Jesus' death to convince him otherwise, and that something also made his formerly unbelieving half-brother become a believing leader in the early church. Additionally, Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, but Timothy nowhere refers to himself as Evangelist Timothy. Nowhere is he handing out business cards. If you have to tell someone what you are, you're not that thing. Also, many terms, as I said earlier, were interchangeable and overlapped with other titles. In the pastoral epistles, the term elder and overseer refer to the same office. Now, at the beginning of this video, I told you that I was going to deal with one more verse that is pertinent to this issue. Ephesians 4.11 reads, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers. Now, nowhere else in scripture is this list repeated. And that's an important hermeneutical principle that we need to consider. And it doesn't say this proves one way or the other, but it is something that should force us to consider the impact of this one-time list of titles or offices within the church. In fact, the word pastors in this verse in the Greek poimen is also significant for its lack of use in this word as pastor. Everywhere else in scripture that that word is used, it means shepherd. And this is why many pastors refer to themselves rightfully so, as shepherds who tend to the spiritual needs of those in their congregations. So in no way am I saying that someone should not call themselves a pastor. In fact, I'm a pastor. I am saying that who we are should not be wrapped up in any title, whether it be a legitimate title such as pastor or some make-believe title such as the third eye of God discipleship coordinator. I really hope that's not a real one. Additionally, the word evangelist is only used twice in the Bible. It means to be a preacher or proclaimer of the gospel. And that should apply to all of us. The most important verses in that part of Ephesians are the ones that come after verse 11. We read, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, Love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Verse 12 explains why God wants people in those positions. It's not to say I have arrived as though achieving such a title brings a spiritual promotion of some kind. And to the extent that it is a promotion, it's only is a promotion if it means that you can now equip more saints for the work of ministry. 
See, if your new title or position is not helping to equip more people for ministry or to make sure that they are not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine or to promote the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, then you need to ditch the title. GotQuestions.org says this. So since the body of Christ definitely is not built up to unity in the faith and has not attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, the thinking goes, in some circles, the offices of apostle and prophet must still be in effect. However, Ephesians 2 and 20 informs us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. If the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church, are we still building the foundation? Although Jesus Christ is most definitely active in the church today, his role as the cornerstone of the church was completed with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. If the work of the cornerstone is in that sense complete, so must the work of the apostles and prophets who were the foundation be complete. What was the role of the apostles and prophets? It was to proclaim God's revelation, to teach the new truth the church would need to grow and thrive. The apostles and prophets completed this mission. How? By giving us the word of God. The word of God is the completed revelation of God. The Bible contains everything the church needs to know to grow, thrive, and fulfill God's mission. The cornerstone work of the apostles and prophets is complete. The ongoing work of the apostles and prophets is manifested in the Holy Spirit speaking through and teaching us God's word. In that sense, the fivefold ministry is still active. But I'd love to know your thoughts in the comments. What are some crazy or interesting titles you've heard used by those in church or in ministry leadership? Or what do you think about the more imaginative titles that people have or give themselves? Are they a distraction or an aid so that you can know the proper person to go to? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. And until next time, peace.